Oh, hello everyone. Welcome back. Uh, I know you missed us and we're here for you again. This is Culture Binge, the Wisecrack podcast where we deep dive into everything going on in the zeitgeist. Uh, Michael and I am here with Wisecrack writer extraordinaire Alec and Re... Oh, sorry. I interrupted him. I'm going to say it again. I'm here with Wisecrack writer extraordinaire Alec. Hello. And Wisecrack researcher Supreme Survey. Hi. Hey, how's everyone doing? Well, how are you? Missed you. Yes, missed everyone here. So glad to be here. Um, and because we we took a little and I think appropriate break, um, we got a lot to get into today. We're going to talk about what is going to happen after this quarantine situation is over. That's of course assuming that it'll ever be over. I will talk a little bit about uh, art made by bad people and about a really deep sociological experiment on Netflix called Dating Around. But before we get into all of that, I think everyone listening knows what we have to do right off the bat, and that's talk about slaps and chaps. We've had a few weeks for these things to to pile up, and I know that everyone watching and listening in the future will want to know what's going on first from Serby. So Serby, what has been slapping and chapping in your marvelous life? So many things slapping and chapping. Um, what slaps? Um, people having an open and ongoing dialogue about biases and what makes them uncomfortable and systemic racism and stuff. What chaps? Systemic racism. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what also it's chaps? A, it's a global systemic system of chapping. It's <laughs> systemic chapping. I feel like now that you've said that, if we don't say that, we're just monsters. Okay, fine. Across the board for everybody, what chaps is systemic Thank racism. Yeah. Um, but also what chaps is New Zealand has two new cases of COVID. <gasps> and I was so bummed. No. I was so happy and so excited for them. I was like, hooray, hooray. They don't have COVID anymore. Um, and so when I saw the news this morning, it really bummed me out. And I felt very sad for all of them. Um what slaps is I discovered this website. You can, like, as soon as you click it, you can select which city you want and you drive around and then you listen to the local radio. So it's <laughs> driveandlisten.herokuapp.com. Wow. It's so good. Driveandlisten.herokuapp.com. That's cool. And I hope that I someone so is listening to this podcast in their car driving in their city and they hear about this and they turn the app on and they drive around on the app in another city while they drive in their own city. Don't that's really that. dangerous. They shouldn't do it, but that'd be fun. I drove around Amsterdam and listened to some fabulous classical music. It was wonderful. Very relaxing. Oh, so like uh, I don't understand K-pop, but if I want to understand K-pop, could I just drive around South Korea? Yeah, I think they might have one okay. on there. I forgot which they have like most of the major cities on there and you can just like click it and the video like the guy I'm I'm assuming it's a guy I think I read somewhere it's a guy um and he like drives around and he recorded it so you go through the city and um then the music plays it's just really good is overall it, it's a very like is it like a city. Grand Theft Auto situation where you can just like run over a, a Dutch cyclist if you're feeling aggressive that day or are you on their preordained journey for your life? You are on their journey. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Do better. Still fun. This app. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Overlay the lap with real the app with real life so that we can have material effects on the lives of strangers based on our emotional whims. Yeah. Um, that sounds great though. Uh, Alec, what is slapping and chapping in your life? What is slapping? Uh, Pokemon. Shit. Why am I just blanking? Pokemon Snap. That's the name of that fucking game. Has have you either of you played Pokemon Snap, the Nintendo yeah. sixty four game? The premise of the game is you literally go around and take pictures of Pokemon. It was one of my favorite games as a kid. It fucking ruled. And they're releasing a new one. And I'm just so happy. I feel like Nintendo is kind of like really hitting like not only childhood nostalgia, but like just like chill games to experience in a nightmare in the nightmare that we live in. And so I hope that they do well. And uh, I think it's just right in there. And I'm very excited. Um also, I started watching Avatar The Last Airbender. I'm only two episodes in, but it's pretty cool. People cool. like that show. I, I can get into this, but that, that overlaps a little bit with my topic later, but I'll say no more. Which is a reality uh, show about dating. That's weird. They're yeah, children. but Avatar, <laughs> yeah, it comes up. 
Um, as far as what's chapping, uh, I do feel a little weird, and I felt weird before Survey said anything, because uh, what chaps is the global nightmare, or U.S. American nightmare. There's a lot of nightmares happening, overlapping layers of nightmares. Um, but I am going to say something very petty amidst the, the nightmare, because this is a culture binge and not, you know, like a... Uh, 60 minutes. 60 minutes. That. Thank you for completing my sentence. People, maybe I've said this before, but I think people who, uh, you know, I've been, New York City has been doing takeout, obviously, most of this whole time, but I've just felt a little more comfortable um, with our, our cases, like walking into, a, like indoors to a place to, to do takeout uh, with a mask on. And people who walk into those places next to you with a mask around their neck, but not mm. on, are worse than people who don't wear a mask at all. It's kind of like, I basically understand that I should be doing this, but I'm either too stupid or too evil to like put on a mask indoors, standing two feet from somebody. Um, and then uh, as I was eating my bagel outside, of course it was a bagel. <laughs> <laughs> um, she, she walks out of the store with, with the mask on. I was like, what are you, what are you even doing? So that, that's it. That's my chat. That's so. I think just as much as Serby said a chap that's universal for all of us. I think that one should be universal as well. People with the the neck mask is the most obnoxious thing ever, unless they have a gill based respiratory system, and yeah. that's where their main. <laughs> or or if like you're you know uh, hiking around and like nobody's in sight and you just pull it up when somebody yeah. walks by, but you know. I've seen people wearing doing that outside and I'm like, oh, they think maybe it's safe outside or something. But then I see them walk inside and I'm just like, what are you doing? Well, people like complain that it's difficult to breathe for them with their masks, so they keep doing it. And it's like, well, get a different mask or or how about it's difficult to breathe with a mask, but it's probably more difficult to breathe if you have COVID. Ooh. Yeah. That's good. I mean the air is hotter and it can be unpleasant as it gets warmer out. But like I've been, I have almost no sympathy because again, like you could, I've been in situations where I step outside and like, I look around and I like get a breath of like fresh cold air, but I also have been doing all my exercise outside with a mask on and it's harder, but like you can fucking order a bagel wearing a mask. Wow. And I think if anyone is in a situation where they see someone like that and there's someone who doesn't look like they could could hurt you badly, you can look at them with a really positive attitude and say, hey, if you think it works great around your neck, wait till you see what this puppy can do around <laughs> your face and then walk away. Um, I really wanted to say that to some people on the street the other day and my partner was horrified by the idea. Um, okay, we got a lot to get into, so I'll get my slaps. Can you, can, well, yeah, can you just do that and tell us how it goes? I want you to do it for us. I will. No, yeah. I definitely will do it. I have been, I will be honest, I have been snapping off at people in public yes. about this. Like, we were on a hike recently, and there's this whole crew that walked by us with no masks, so I started loudly singing a song um, about how they're better than us because they don't need their masks because they're special, and my partner mm -hmm. started walking really fast down the mountainside, but I was like, they're going to be ashamed. They're not going to say anything, and they didn't. Um, so, you know, have fun with publicly shaming strangers is my main advice. Uh, this has been Culture Binge for... Oh, go ahead. Wait, do we know what's uh, slapping and chapping for you? No, I'll say it real quick. Um, okay, here's what's slapping. This was I'm going to say this. It was really hard. I wanted to just say nothing, and I don't want that to bum anyone out. I'm not saying that life is horrible. I'm just saying nothing's really slapped that hard for me recently. Things have been fine, but nothing stood out. I will say one thing. This is so minimal and stupid but I, I got this product from a company well i won't even say what company it doesn't matter we don't do free ads here pay us if you want it but um it's a product that you can put a can in and then you kind of tighten it around it and it keeps it cold so like the same way you have those really nice cups or mugs to keep your coffee really hot or your drink really cold so whether you're drinking like a Lacroix or a spindrift or another sort of carbonated water product during the day or a beer in the it's evening alcohol. it's for alcohol yeah it's for both no because because i like it during the day although what happens is if you use it during the day then your partner gives you a look that's like are you drinking a beer at 2 p.m and then you have to open it up show them that it's a Lacroix or something but by then you know it's lost all the temperature anyways um, but it's a really functional product it's nice for keeping drinks cold and i think especially because it looks like um, any social lives that many of us have, at least the responsible amongst us have this summer, are going to involve being outside with friends and stuff like that. So I'm excited to have a product I can use to keep a beverage cold as I sit outside with a mask on, taking little sips uh, six to eight feet away from my friends. This is the summer so, of beverages. Uh, I'm just going to call it. <laughs> it is. I'm hoping it's the summer of personality and not of summer bod. Because I've been leaning really hard into the COVID-15. <laughs> wow. 
Um, I actually learned I've, I got the COVID negative 10. I had a physical yesterday and I've lost weight during this time. I don't know what that means. I think it means I haven't been to the gym in three months. You're atrophying. Uh, Your bones yes. are losing density. I am. Uh, I heard one of them snap the other day, but it's fine. I, I built <laughs> I built a crutch. Uh, okay, so I'll do my chaps really quick. Um, obviously, agree with Serbi's chaps. The, uh, everything going on in the world, systematic injustice, bad. Um, Alec, people not wearing masks around their face, but around their neck, bad. That also chaps. I'll just add this to the to the everything we have going. Um, dreams. I think dreams, chap. I don't like <laughs> them. <laughs> I think that it's a waste of time. When I sleep, I just want to sleep. I don't want to wake up and then have to unpack a dream for half an hour. Yesterday morning, I, I just woke up earlier than I normally do. I was like right in the middle of a dream, and it haunted me for the first half of my day. It wasn't mm. even a scary dream. Um, I just don't like it because then I feel like I'm putting in mental effort while sleeping and not just sleeping. If there is a pill that makes you not dream, I will buy it from you, whether it's FDA approved or not. Dreams, chap. That's what I got. <laughs> you're supposed to do dream work like if you have like a recurring dream or if you have a dream that continues to haunt you when you're awake you're supposed to do dream work where you like work out the dream and like solve the problem of whatever it was like for me i always have like this dream where i'm like either getting like kidnapped or chased or i have one where i'm like in school and i forgot to drop my classes and i'm getting f's and everything and there's a test or something so you're supposed to like think like okay well how would i get out of it like, how would I save myself? And then you, it's supposed to help you decrease the frequency with which you have that dream. Okay. Well, uh, before I take the non-FDA approved dream killer pill, I will try to solve for X in my own dreams. Hmm. Um, but yeah, send us your dream stories. Okay, so let's get started. We have a lot of stuff to talk about. I'm, I'm excited to talk about these topics. Not that I'm not normally excited about everyone's topics, but this time I'm like, wow, what a lineup. Um, so I think Alec is going to get us started off. Alec, you're going to tell us about what life will or might be like after quarantine. So sort get of. into it. Sort of. Yeah. Sure. Well, okay. So it's going to end there, but I'm going to do something I think a little different, which is uh, I kind of have this idea that I've been thinking about. I haven't like read a ton about it. And so basically I'm going to propose it to you all and you're going to tell me that I'm dumb or somewhere in between, whatever you can argue. You could always argue with me, but you can especially argue with me and call me dumb. So I was thinking about how commuting has structured the world and obviously nobody's commuting now. And so uh, it's going to get to how the lack of commuting or the return of commuting might sort of change the world after this. But my basic thesis that I want to sort of argue about is that commuting has destroyed America and maybe possibly parts of democracy. Uh, yeah. What, so far, what are your thoughts? <laughs> Commuting has destroyed America or lack yeah, of commuting? I mean, that's very has. vague, but like, I think commuting is bad for people and America and also literally democracy. Okay. And by commuting, do you mean getting in a car and going on the highway or do you mean taking a bus two miles to the other side of town? I think all of it. Uh, specifically, I, th I think it's the, the time factor, right? So uh, at least in, I think the average American commute is like 26 minutes, which to me does not seem that bad. But it's been increasing, and I just know a lot of people who commute an hour, an hour and a half. Some insane people commute two hours, sometimes because they have to. And so my argument is that the process of commuting, whether by car or train, has kind of turned us into zombies, especially on those higher ends of things, where I know lots of people, they wake up at 6 a.m., they get ready, they drive an hour to work or get on the subway, whatever, uh, they work. They get home at 7, 7.30, sometimes 8. They make dinner, and now all of a sudden it's 9, 9.30, and then they like watch an episode of 90 Day Fiance and go to bed. And so I think there's like a lot of – and so there's been studies that like commuting uh, is associated with higher rates of stress, obesity. One study even suggests that people just die earlier from commuting. And, and so that's the individual level. But I think like on the societal level – uh, it's kind of destroyed community in America. Uh, so the reason that this kind of ties into COVID is obviously lots of people are working from home. New York is opening up a little bit, but I do feel like in New York, you know, a lot of people work in the creative industry or, you know, just a lot of jobs that don't really require going there. And I've seen like a legitimate, even in lockdown and as things open up, a legitimate like boom in community. Um, a local musician has started doing like outdoor concerts at like seven o'clock and people just sort of meander. And, you know, like it's a crowd of 15 or 20 people. Um, people are more kind of like ambling around the streets. That's also because restaurants are closed that they can't go inside, but like the, the sidewalks feel 
more people, but not in an annoying way. Um, people have basically commandeered a grassy median on a quiet street to, as like a picnic space because the park is too crowded. And like, I've been talking to strangers. And so I think, you know, I work from home anyway. And when I go out, not in COVID, like my neighborhood's pretty much a ghost town. Most people commute into the city. Uh, there's a couple of people in my building who also work from home and I, I, I see them. Um, but I think what's happening is that there's just the general exhaustion of commuting is gone. And so now people are taking nice, more relaxing lunch breaks or at six o'clock, instead of being on a train, they're like stopping by a happy hour down the block at the bar and they're on the sidewalk, like talking to their friends. Um, But I think the democracy thing is, and this is maybe a little bit more tenuous, but I think you could probably like the, the the ongoing protest about George Floyd, I think have seen, far bigger turnout than like anybody ever imagined. And like what happened is, is not new as many people know, like there weren't as big as protests for, I, I correct me if I'm wrong, like Trayvon Martin or, you know, any of the, the countless people uh, who the, the police have, have, or police or other people have killed. And I think part of it's massive unemployment. Like people don't have jobs to go to. They're like, fuck it. I'll show up to a protest at two o'clock. And the other part is that, and, and I've been in the situation, there's a protest going on about wh- whether it's, you know, whether you're protesting lockdown or the police or that uh, you really want uh, Avatar, The Last Airbender to have a few more seasons. Like if you're at a job and you have to like get home as soon as possible and make dinner, it seems just bad for that sense of community building. And like, I've been in that situation and now it's like, oh, I work from home and I have, it's like, if it's something's at 630, like I can just hop and go do that. You know, there's not that sense of exhaustion. And so I think like, ultimately, if people are working from home after COVID, uh, again, not even any issue specifically, like people, like communities might be revitalized. People might have more energy to like engage in this thing called democracy, which I think everyone, regardless of political affiliation can agree is a good thing. I agree. I work remotely full time and I've been working remotely for years and it's for the same reasons that you expressed. Like there's like less depressive symptoms like commuting. I don't have to spend like an hour in the car each way. I My health has improved. My stress levels have improved. I think it's better for the environment. I feel like I'm more engaged socially when I work remotely than when I work in an office, mm-hmm. mostly because when I'm forced to interact with people all day, I have no energy to do so after hours. Mm -hmm. Like I don't want to join like an extracurricular activity or anything like that. Um, I do think people are more engaged now because they probably have more time and they're less stressed about like making dinner, taking care of their kids, spending time with their loved ones because they're around them all the time. Yeah, There's like more quality time throughout the day. You're not forced to time box it between like six and nine. Hmm. Yeah, I think, go ahead, Alec. No, no, you go ahead. I have a, a second part to this, but I want to. Okay, well, I was going to say in, in general, I, I mostly agree with you all. I think part of it though, when you were talking about how commuting sucks the life out of us, well, then I was just thinking, well, like, well why do we commute? Because maybe we have to work too much. So, you know, is, is commuting the culprit or is work the culprit or how do these, do these two things interact to suck the marrow out of our lives in I a think negative that, way. That's accidentally the perfect segue into the second part, which is that like our cities have been designed specifically for commuting. Uh, some of this is brought up. Um, her name is Caroline Criado Perez wrote this book called Invisible Women, which is kind of about data and algorithms and lots of stuff. But she talks specifically about the way we designed our cities in New York. This is especially true. I know like LA is this weird LA is very strange the way it's laid out, but cities are designed. There's a city center where all the office jobs are um, and people go from the periphery like inwards. And so in New York city, all of the trains go through Manhattan and getting, you know, from Brooklyn to Queens is very difficult because the, the infrastructure is not built to get people there. And so what this means, uh, and, and Caroline, uh, Criado Perez talks about this is that, you know, like, if you're say like a housewife and your day isn't commuting the office, it's like visiting your family members, but also doing grocery shopping and also like dropping the kids off at daycare or like those sorts of things. Like the infrastructure is literally not built for that. And so I think this is not uh, what, what she argues in her book, but sort of like extrapolating for that. I think we can think about the way that our neighborhoods are built for like everyone to be gone during the day uh, to go to the city center and come back. And so 
you know, I think if people are spending more time in their neighborhoods, not only will the community be stronger, but people might start asking for more like recreational space, more parks, more playgrounds, you know, things like that. And even, and part of this is just because of COVID, but there's been a push to close down streets so kids can play on them and like socially distance safely. There's been, people are basically advocating for like parking space to be taken up so that there can be like more outdoor sidewalk cafes and then, you know, uh, people can sort of walk around them on the street. And so like, I think it's, really easy to like neglect your neighborhood when you only really appreciate it two hours a week. And also just the centralization, you know, that's true of business, but like if COVID, if everyone is working from home, I think that decentralization kind of starts to go away, maybe not immediately, but in the long term. like even think about restaurants, like so many restaurants exist in midtown Manhattan, for instance, just one example. And they basically close early because their job is to serve like the tens of thousands of office workers that come through there. And then like nobody lives there. Um, Whereas if everyone's home all the time, like your neighborhood restaurants are going to do much better because people are ordering lunch from there when they would normally be in a different neighborhood. Uh, Possibly more restaurants will open, maybe more grocery stores and service industries and, and that kind of stuff like that. So you could have like a legitimate, like sort of decentralization of cities and Again, that might not happen. Everyone might just start commuting to work again, you know, in three months or there's a vaccine and all of everyone's boss is like, fuck it, you have to drive two hours again. So yeah. that's what well, I'm I think with. I've seen a little micro version of what you're describing kind of around where I live. Um, and if anyone wants to know, just uh, DM me. I'll give you my address. Um, but like, I'll never so get tired of that joke. I know. I love it so much. Um, but where I live, a lot of people in my neighborhood of LA work in various like creative industries or actors or writers or producers or musicians or you know, all the like hippie shit. Um, and what that means is like a lot of people don't have offices they regularly go to when they're not working. Um, mm-hmm. So a lot of people are always just like hanging around the neighborhood, working at different like coffee shops or the library and stuff like that. And I think it does create more of a vibe of like people are out and about in the neighborhood. And I know something, you know, Serby, you were talking about how you've, and Alec as well, like if it kind of enjoyed or like do a good job of working remotely and hanging at home and being social after. I know for me, the thing that I hate the most is that lack of, of like a third place or third space being mm-hmm. home all day, like crushes my soul. and makes me feel like I'm, I'm, I'm dying spiritually. And I think something about having spaces to exist and be around people that like aren't in a forced work context is really helpful. And I think in particular, having that be more of like a part of your regular day is really nice. Um, I love like running into people, um, seeing people at the coffee shop you see regularly. Like recently my, my local place reopening and just getting to like see the baristas through a plexiglass screen has been really nice. Um, before, so I do think like, yeah, there's versions yeah. of this. Go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say before the pandemic, I discovered this cool new co-working space called uh, the library um mm. but <laughs> wait is uh, it is it library with no vowels so just l r b y or something or no L-B-R-Y? just the, the, the regular library but so no it's an like, app. like like i i totally agree with that and you know it's not perfect because i also want that third space and you know cafes kind of serve as that but then you have to pay and like the library is awesome because it's just a place and people are doing like you've got like old people just using the computer to like read the news or email uh their dead relatives or you know uh kids there (laughs) are just there to play minecraft basically uh (laughs) and and so like libraries are really amazing in that way and to be honest this isn't even a complaint like i don't use it as much as i could because in at least in my neighborhood it's like a huge service for kids um, and it's awesome. They have a place to play on computers and learn about computers and read books and, and meet other kids and do all this stuff. And so it's really wholesome and great. But me as a crotchety adult, I'm just like, can we double the library budget? So there's a library for adults and a library for kids. <laughs> oh, I think that's a great idea. I mean, that's the, one of the things I miss most about being a part of an academic community is like, having a library normally it has like some cafe attached and you can go whether you're working on something serious or sit around or browse books libraries are great but in general yeah i'm coming around to this out but i think like you're getting at uh, just an even bigger point uh, about sort of like how we live how we work how our cities are structured i mean i think you're positing that, that another world is possible and i like the world that you're talking about um and i i do wonder because sometimes i don't know if either of y'all do this i know that we all live um, in, in pretty major metropolitan areas, 
this is, I think, sometimes why I fetish fetishize smaller places or like mid-sized cities. In particular, I'm obsessed with the idea that I need to live in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, if you're from Madison, let me know. But just the idea of like a city where big enough to where you have stuff going on, small enough to where you know you can live and work in the same place. You can walk around. There's local businesses. There's stuff to do in nature outside. Uh, you know, there's still like a sense of of community rather than some situation where like people live and work hours away from the same place, don't interact in their local community, that sort of thing. Uh, so do, do you all ever think about that? Like that there's maybe places where life is more like this and maybe we just all live in commuter heavy places. So have this view of the world. I often think about that, but I don't, I haven't, I went to, I don't even want to say the name of the city because I was just very unimpressed, but also I didn't spend enough time there to like announce on the internet that the city sucks. A- Atlanta. No, I'll just, it, it was dead. No offense to anyone at Denver. One of my best Denver's friends. overrated. I'll say it. You don't say it. This is not Alex saying it. This is me saying it unprovoked. I think Denver is overrated. People are really obsessed with that city. I get that there's some great stuff there, but I don't know. I don't like the vibe. Go ahead, Alec. Yeah. I, I don't know. I haven't, have I haven't been there enough to, to really have a verdict. And again, some of my best friends live in Denver. So just <laughs> <laughs> listen, I have lots of friends from Denver, so I can say this. For me, it doesn't matter how long or short the commute is. I just don't want to commute at all. Yeah. I find like if I, like I'm not getting paid for that time, even if it takes like 20 minutes to get there, yeah. like I'm not getting paid for that 20 minutes. Like, it feels like a waste of my time. It feels like 20 minutes I could be doing something else. Well, like, can I ask time- this question then yeah. to clarify? Is that the same for both of y'all with Serbia in particular, if it's commuting driving in your car alone and sitting on a train like is it just commuting across the board and i only say this yeah. because i've had times where i've commuted an hour and a half in the car and i've hated it i had a time in my life where i commuted an hour on a train every day and i loved it because i would sit there and like read listen to a podcast and look out the window so but do you think it's no matter what all commuting is bad all commuting for me so all com- a c i all commuting is bad uh in the studies i was reading uh Basically, the worst form of commuting for your health is to be in a car. People who take uh, buses and trains live longer. To be honest, like I think about this because I used to commute about an hour on a train, and I was just like an hour. I mean, it sucked. Like I couldn't; it was too busy. I couldn't find a seat. But also, it's just like an hour I was standing instead of sitting, which is just good for you. Um, and I would listen to podcasts, and now I don't really. I don't listen to nearly as many. Uh, I don't know. Like I. I thought about this thing of like, oh, should I get an office outside of the house? Um, like, even if I could afford it. And there was like a thing in my neighborhood. And I was like, I'm not going to pay a bunch of money to walk five minutes. Like, I'm just not going to do that. But like, if it was 20 minutes away and it's like a 20 minute walk, like I like walking, like I'll walk 20 minutes every day to get somewhere. So I think I'm a little bit different than Serbia on that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I'll just say, yeah, I did have one period where when I did commute by train, it was like more of like a regional commuter train, not like a subway. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed the sort of like getting to the train station. This was in, going from D.C. to Baltimore, in case anyone wants to imagine this vividly. Um, but, you know, you get to the station and maybe you're 30 minutes till your train. So you go to the old timey train station bar and grab a quick drink and get on the train. Maybe you see some people that are always on that same train. I don't know. I kind of I kind of dig that. But it is because I fetishize the, uh, you know, mad men commute lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did a Virginia to D.C. commute and I hated it, especially when I got on the slow train and yeah. it would take me like an hour and a half to get home, which would have only been like a 20 minute car ride. But even then, I just found it to be a waste of time. Like wh- I always thought, like, what could I be doing with that time? You could have been on Other the Baltimore to D.C. train, which is the fun one. That's the party could train. Could have been on that one. The Got Virginia it. one is like the lame, like, oh, I work in political consulting train. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, so this is I'm loving this conversation. We do need to move on. Does anyone have any last thoughts on this before we move on to what I also think is going to be a, a real barn burner of a topic? Get a remote job. You'll love it. Ooh, I say do not. Um, but we're different people on this one. Uh, let's get into it, though. We can talk about that more later. And please, we'll get we'll get to this. Please let us know what you think about this. Um, next topic, Serby's going to get this going for us. Um, a lot to talk about here. Serby, you're going to break down the relationship between art and the artist in particular, I think, what we make of shitty people making good art. Yes. So I started to think about this uh, more intentionally in the last couple of weeks after reading the public response to J.K. Rowling sharing her views on gender identity and transgender rights. Um, 
And I read online that people were saying that they started to unlove Harry Potter and that they couldn't support her work anymore due to her beliefs. So I I love Harry Potter. It's, it was like my entire childhood and my adulthood. So it means a lot to me. Um, and so I, I wondered about this. Like, how do I feel about this? But Joe Rowling is just one example of someone who created well-known art, but who has controversial opinions. Um, Mel Gibson, Richard Wagner, uh, Tom Cruise. Noticing the thing. They're all people <laughs> who are known for their art and their radical beliefs. So I've been talking to friends, I've been doing research, and many people struggle with separating art from the artist. And there are two main challenges. So the first is that people think that as soon as you become aware of an artist's behavior or beliefs, the work that they create absorbs those external influences and people find that they're unable to view the work in the same way. The second challenge that people struggle with is that if you enjoy somebody's work made by a controversial individual, does that make you complicit with their views or behavior? So Claire Hayes Brady is a lecturer in American literature at University College Dublin and she said, for me, it's a false dichotomy dichotomy because this question presupposes we should want our artists to be virtuous and that we should expect morality and ethical behavior from artists. I don't understand why we expect that or why we should expect that. Whatever you think about David Foster Wallace, it is certainly the case that he is a cultural touchstone. His work was important at a particular moment. As such, that justifies spending time studying it in critical and challenging ways with a critical eye. So David Foster Wallace is known for his novel, Infinite Jest, which Time Magazine cited as one of the 100 best English language novels from 1920s to 2005. He's also known for abusing and stalking uh, the poet Mary Carr. So my question to you is, could we or should we separate art from the artist? And then I have a follow-up question after that. I don't want to be annoying and and make and avoid like giving a black and white answer to this, but I really do think there's a a spectrum here in how we respond to like the art and artist relationship. I think, you know, the idea that one doesn't like the Harry Potter novels because J.K. Rowling has some, you know, retrograde views, I think is maybe a little much. I get the idea that maybe you're like, screw it, I don't want to give her money, then just like pirate the books or go to the library, I guess. Um, but to me that seems like a lot. On the other hand, I don't know, like if someone you brought up Gibson before, if someone is is known for saying racist and anti-Semitic stuff and then they produce art or are a part of art, if it leans that way, then I am a little sus. Like Mel Gibson has made some movies before where he's like gets to play a cop that uses the N word. And it's like, oh, are you like liking this a little bit too much? Or in his depiction of like the Jesus story, like the Passion of the Christ is all about like how we literally get to see like the Jews kill Jesus. So like I think there are instances where someone's uh political ideologies can come through in like in the cracks and then i think the other side of that is i worry sometimes that and this happens a lot in like old school literature departments in, in universities that it's like are we just jumping through hoops to make excuses for why we can still read like mostly old problematic dudes so that we don't then have to start reading maybe new more diverse less problematic authors um, and that's, that's a, a thing that I wonder about sometimes if this is, if we can use this as a crutch to keep ourselves from maybe opening up the canon a little bit. I think, uh, well, first of all, I think this, this piracy thing is like a great solution. Cause I think mostly, mostly for me, I, I think you brought up some good points, but like it comes down to money and like, I'll just give the example of obviously not an artist per se, but like. If you buy, if back in the day you bought a Ford car when Henry Ford owned it, like he's turned around, he's taking that money, he's dumping it into like publishing the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is like this anti-Semitic text. And so like, it's weird to be like, money from my pocket is going to be used for these things. But like, you know, it also applies to artists like, and I think I've said this before, like if R. Kelly is using his money and status to like abuse people and you're putting money in his pocket, like you're kind of helping that because rich people get away with a bunch of shit. And so there's that, but the point that they're dead. And I mean, the example like I'll use is that like 
Michael Jackson was a very influential figure, obviously a very bad person. And I wouldn't want, like, obviously used his wealth to like abuse a bunch of people. But, you know, if the money's not going to him and it's not promote, and as far as I can tell, there's nothing in his music that really sort of speaks to the awful thing- things he did. Like, it's not like he's promoting these things. And I, I, I think he's just an important artist for a lot of people. And I might have also said this on this podcast at the same time, the bagel shop in my neighborhood will all, all exclusively play Michael Jackson songs. And I think they're trying to make some kind of statement. And I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. It's yeah. Yeah. And so and I mean, there's so many other uh, like, again, there's a spectrum like uh, I used to be really into uh, big band artist Buddy Rich, who was like a monster to his employees. And, you know, we always hear that, like the the actor musician who basically emotionally abuses the people that work under them. Like, that's not cool. Buddy Rich is dead. And so, like, I don't feel bad doing that. Um, But then to your other point, like, you know, I don't I don't think it's mutually exclusive right like i mean the thing that comes up in philosophy is that you know plato just straight up plato and aristotle or just aristotle they both love slavery and like in their books it's in there right but like it's still very important to understand that in the context of western philosophy and you know to like read the criticism so like if we're going to read david foster wallace and you know understand the shitty things he's doing like there's obviously other artists to sort of read from the opposite perspective that don't maybe look like him. So both of you touched on this earlier that there's a spectrum. So should we do this on a case by case basis? Does it depend on the severity of the situation? For example, Sean Penn, R. Kelly, Roman Polanski, Woody Allen, Johnny Depp, they're all individuals who have been allegedly engaged in domestic abuse or other violent and criminal behavior. I say allegedly because I don't want to be sued. (laughs) (laughs) it's really hard with actors too i mean like uh because like an an actor is not the defining like it's you know like we always think of a movie as like the director's you know brainchild or something like that and so oh if kevin spacey has like a secondary role and that's where i don't know maybe i think there's a point where and i don't mean this uh, in, in some sort of like holier than that way or like super hypercritical, but it like gets exhausting. Right. Because also like, I don't even want to call it the danger, but we could do this with like literally, like I even think about this way of like, I've tried to stop shopping at Amazon because they treat their warehouse workers like shit. Right. And, but then I'm like buying from target. And it's like, well, does target also treat their worker? And I, I just don't know. And so like, if you just want to watch a movie, there's a scenario where it basically becomes impossible to enjoy anything. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I do think it's a hard balance because, I mean, for example, you brought up uh, Woody Allen, Serby, who you said there was um, allegedly issues with. I don't think they're alleged, but, um, <laughs> you know, the recently my partner and I went and rewatched the movie Manhattan by Woody Allen, which neither of us had watched in years. So creepy. And, yes. And here's the thing. I had forgotten some major parts of that movie. One of the major plot points is Woody Allen playing dates a, a character like himself in his 40s who dates a literal child and, like, doesn't want her to, like, go away after high school so we can keep, you know, hanging out and having sex with a kid. So I, I think that, you know, that was a movie that, like, got made and was very popular. And go back and read reviews of Manhattan published in, like, I guess, like, the early 80s. People loved it. Uh, they were excited about it. And I think that in that case, like, I don't know, watching Woody Allen movies, especially when he has so much of that in, in the movies themselves, feel gross. Listening to R. Kelly's music, when often it is... It's very sexual in nature. And then you're like, oh, shit, are you, like, singing this about a child in your in your dungeon? Like, that makes you feel gross. I am hesitant to say, and maybe this makes me a bad person. I don't know. I wouldn't want to say to a friend, like, you are complicit if you if you watch Annie Hall. No, yeah, I don't Yeah, I would just say true. pirate Annie Hall. I mean, I'm not saying yeah. that. I'm not encouraging anyone to break the law. But uh, I guess what I'm saying is... Uh, in a very philosophical, non abstract sense, there is an argument for stealing movies. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I, I don't know. I just think as well, I think you're, and I think sort of brought this up early on, I think it's, it's right to say we shouldn't have this moral expectation where we only want to consume art by people that have good views in politics the same way, like, I don't know, we don't go to a restaurant and ask for, like, the chef's voting record before we order food from her. Um, <laughs> but there are examples of people that make good art and have an interesting social or political perspective. And I do think then sometimes we can do the, like, you know, the sort of uh, defensive work of 
being aware of how shitty people that make art are and maybe avoiding that. But we can also be more proactive sometimes and maybe seeking out work created by people that have an interesting perspective or a perspective that challenges us um, because it is grounded in some sort of social or political or cultural critique or idea. And I think that could be a, a good thing for us to do. So if we feel shitty, the people we like are bad, I don't know, maybe find some art by people that are good. It, it exists and often it makes the art more interesting. So I I think I do a pretty good job of separating the art from the artist, except when it comes to like specific cases mm-hmm. or like it, like on the scale. Like if somebody's like violent or abusive or doing like like – uh, engaging in acts that I find completely abhorrent, then I can't separate the art from the artist. Um, but if it's like extreme beliefs, then it's easier for me to think, well, that's, that's, those are their opinions. I don't know what it's like to be those people or what experiences have shaped them to form these views. So by extreme Um, beliefs, do you mean like, let's say for just like throwing this out there, like a cultish religion or something like that gives you less pause than someone who's known to be abusive? Yes. Okay. Sorry to, to put you extent. on the spot there, but yeah. But like for like specific things, like if that cult engages in like abusive behavior, then that is harder for me. So like take the example for like Tom Cruise, let's say, like with the Scientology thing. Like I don't I know a lot about Scientology from like that going clear documentary. Um, so if there's a Scientologist out there, please don't be mad at me. I can just... see a Scientology center from my window. I'm not kidding right now. And there's now a big tower. we know tower. where you live even more. So there's like four main ones. Um, I could be in Clearwater, Florida for all you know. But yeah, so I, hopefully they're they're getting my signal right now. But go ahead. Get us in trouble. Okay, let's just not talk about Scientology. <laughs> no, let's do it. Do about... it. <laughs> no, because they like follow you. I'm not interested. Um, so let's talk about like like – Oh, I don't want to talk about anybody now because I'm afraid of like somebody like finding me. Anyway, wait, it's easier I, for I me can to, do like... it because I I'm fine. I'm I'm you know what? Come at me, Scientology. This isn't Serbi saying this, but like we could say that Scientology has some issues with with abuse, with people going missing, with with treating people very terribly. So can it? I mean, I don't know. Like I'm rewatching Cheers these days. Kirstie Alley, noted Scientologist. Um, also, Cheers goes off Netflix in two weeks. Watch it while you can. But it is weird sometimes <laughs> if you're watching someone in a show and then you look up some some of the things they've said about Scientology and you know they're very supportive of an institution that has some very problematic stuff. But how about this, Serby? This is something that worries me. Are we harder on things like Scientology than we are about, let's say, like an actor who's like an evangelical Christian and is a part of a church that has J.K. Rowling-esque views on gender and sexuality like you know like uh what's the which is the chris who's uh who's guardians of the galaxy chris chris pratt chris pratt like chris pratt is like a noted uh you know kind of right-leaning evangelical christian can i like you know is that as problematic as like a a scientologist yeah i didn't think about that i mean i i guess in a way because words have power and if you're wielding those words to like incite hatred and violence that can other people can then use to like be abusive to other people based on their beliefs then yeah i guess so i didn't i i think one thing and i don't even again like this isn't even a criticism i think it's just how our brains work is that like there is no there is no like rational hyperlogical thing because they're like like just about crimes right like our brains if you want to be hyper rational you'd be consequentialist right like let's say one ceo like has uh like terrible uh workplace safety and like 20 people die that seems less evil than like an actor who just like straight up one-on-one murders someone you know and so the consequentialist is like well more people died and i think like it gets really tricky like again as we're going through like cults versus this versus that or like you know emotional abuse versus like sexual abuse versus like uh just regular physical assault like punching someone like all those things are bad and it's very hard to do like a very specific calculus but like our brains you know culturally and psychologically are just wired to get like more upset about some of those things than others and so i don't know it's just like I don't know the answer is, is basically what I'm saying. Yeah, I feel like this isn't an answerable question, but I feel like that's why it's such a great topic. And I'm glad Sorby brought this up because I think this is something where, I don't know, I imagine in all of our own lifetimes, we're going to go back and forth and change our minds about this as the culture shifts. It's it's really kind of, a, if I can be crass, kind of a mind fuck to, to go down this rabbit hole. 
Yeah. And if you're listening and you have figured it out or you also struggle with this, please, please let us know. Yes. Give Very us curious the to answer. Hear. Send us the list of approved text and media and we will stick to that <laughs> from here on out. Um, okay. So uh, any last thoughts on this before we, we keep this train rolling? I've always not liked Harry Potters. I just want to say that. <laughs> oh, no. I think she's like a good storyteller. Like she tells like an interesting, like she's a good world builder. But like basically everything you ever learn about writing, uh, she breaks all those rules, but not in a cool way. Um, <laughs> and I think everyone who views Harry Potter as a lens to look at like politics should stop and should have stopped a long time ago. <laughs> Wow, and I'll just you I'd know like throw a few to on. To announce my retirement from culture. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, sir. <laughs> wow. No, it's okay. Um, <laughs> just to make sure everyone's in trouble, I'll just add that J.R.R. Tolkien is just like writing about Christianity, and if you're really into Lord of the Rings, you've become a some sort of conservative Presbyterian along the way. Um, uh, I'm kidding; they're fun too. So, uh, well, I'll get to my topic. It's it's not as is in depth. It's not as culturally significant as the two that have come before. So we can just have a little fun with this. I think at this point I have made myself the resident consumer of dating-based reality television. Um, it's something that I've slowly acknowledged as I've gotten older that I like. Uh, I don't like that I like it. I'm not proud of the fact that I like it, but I find it interesting. Uh, this could be because dating has changed so much in our culture over the past decade. It could be that because of that change, we don't get to witness and be around a lot of in-person dating. Uh, it could be that I've been in a relationship for a really long time, so I'm interested in living vicariously through people that are still out there on the market and on the scene. I'm not sure. But a important um, a new member of the dating reality show TV canon is a Netflix series called Dating Around. Now, Dating Around first came out uh, with its first season about a year ago, and it was just a six-episode drop. And the first time I watched it through, we didn't realize that it was only six episodes, and I don't know if I've ever been so disappointed in my life when I found <laughs> out something was that short. Uh, the basic premise of this show, it's a really, really stripped-down, minimalist version of dating TV with almost no gimmicks. Here's the setup. Uh, we have a protagonist for every episode. This person, our lead, goes on five first dates. These dates consist of drink at the bar before, dinner at the same place after that drink, and then if things go well, they go out and have a cocktail afterwards. Classic scenario. At the end of the episode, they go on one second date. So uh, we watch a person go on a week's worth of dates, and then at the end, we see who they like best. And it's really interesting because throughout, you see the difference between you know, who looks great on a first impression, who plays it better over dinner, who do they have more physical chemistry with. It often ends up being the case that whoever you think they're going to like most at the beginning is not who they pick for their date. Now, the first season was based in New York, so we got to, you know, live in Alex's world for a little bit and see what the modern nightlife scene and dating scene is in New York. The most recent season, which came out, I think, on Friday, Netflix put the episodes up, um, and by Friday, I mean that would have been Friday june something i'll call it the 12th um readers write in and let me know readers uh, viewers or listeners let me know if that's wrong it probably is um but the most recent season is in new orleans a very nightlife heavy city and i wanted to focus in particular on this there is an episode of season two of dating around that is the most compelling episode of television i've seen in 2020 wow it is the second episode of season two now, our main dater in this episode is a guy by the name of Dr. Ben Samuel. Now, Dr. Ben is interesting because Dr. Ben is a professor of computer science at the University of New Orleans who, as he indicates, does research on video games. Um, so is some form of gaming designer in all of this. Um, now, a lot of times in dating shows, there's a certain type of person that goes on these shows, kind of like influencer types, the types that would want to leverage their appearance on a show like this to increase their follower count and get better brand deals so they can sell teas that encourage eating disorders or something like that. Also Alex, narcissist. A heavy narcissist at a clinical level that should be instituted. Dr. Ben is different. Dr. Ben is a, and I mean this in a positive way, hopefully everyone can know this, he is a nerdy computer science professor who just seems like a good guy, a little socially awkward, who really wants to meet someone great. And watching that level of earnestness on a show like this is 
is and was one of the most compelling things I've watched. Uh, my partner and I were having to pause the TV to scream, to cry, to laugh, to yell. It was a riveting 25-minute experience. Now, the reaction has been such that if you Google dating around and Ben, there are already multiple articles that have been published on various culture websites in the past 48 hours about how good and special and unique Ben is. Ben himself has taken to his social media and has, this is the sort of guy he is, he has responded to almost every person who is on Twitter said, really great watching the show. I love Ben. He seems so great. At Ben, you seem like such a nice guy. At Ben, um, it's great that you value consent so much. Um, it's just been phenomenal. So my main thing is I think everyone should watch the show, in particular, watch the Dr. Ben episode Follow him on social media. Um, now, I, as far as I understand, has has either have either of y'all ever watched this television show? No, no. I have been I watching more reality TV though, and okay, there's a lot of haters on here, and I understand you. I was where you are, not even six months ago. But let me tell you, sometimes you get tired of being a big old smarty pants, and you're just like, I need to turn off my fucking brain. Yes, agreed. Um, and, and, and like, I just want to say this, I get it. I know there's some of you in the chat right now. I'm not looking. We're probably saying things like, why is Michael on the show? His tastes are stupid. Anyone who watches reality TV doesn't deserve to breathe oxygen. I hear that there's some of you who are also acknowledging that because of my obsession with this, you've checked out reality TV as well. And I appreciate you and I see you. Um, but I don't know. Do you, do you all think that, do, do you think that it's even possible? And I think this is what I'm positing with the Dr. Ben episode of, season two of dating around i mean can someone do something like this for good reasons is it possible that we can believe that there's still an earnest and pure soul out there who will go on a show like this because they really want to meet people or am i just deluding myself so that i can enjoy these things i think uh it's i don't know about this person i think it's possible and i think uh like a good thing about i've been watching uh queer eye is that they get nominated yeah. Here's the thing, right? There's like a selection filter in reality shows in that like anyone who thinks to themselves, I want to be on a reality show is automatically someone who should be on a reality show because that person has narcissism issues and probably many other very critical issues. Um, and so that's what happens. Whereas like on sort of a nomination based show, it's like, I, and I don't know what level of fakery is involved in the show, but like, when you're nominating someone who's like, this person's done a lot for the community, they never take care of themselves, and like, it'd be really great if you could teach them how to like dress nice so they can meet a partner, you know? Yeah. Also, I'll note, Dating Around, also a nomination show. The first thing we hear, we see some B-roll of the person dating, and we hear an audio overlay of their friends and family saying why they nominated them. I'll also say the most recent season of Queer Eye in Philadelphia is also high art. Uh, I It's probably because I'm going through some stuff or we're all going through some stuff as a culture. God, I cried so much watching the most recent season. But yeah, I don't know. There's something about shows Wait, like that. Can we nominate Serbi for Dating Around? If, if Listen, they if they come to Southern California, I'm just, I'm leaving it broad because we don't need to tell you Serbi's address. I'll give you mine. You don't get hers. Um... I would, I would love that. I would love to see Serby on that show. I think you would actually crush on that show. And there's someone who, who's on, I think I've seen someone on the show before who has a personality that reminds me of yours and she crushed. So I imagine you would as well. Um, but, but, but I just want to say that I think there's, it's worth checking out. I know that there's not too much to talk about because you all are too highbrow to watch the trash that I will watch. Well, also, no, I watch Teen Mom. Oh, God. I've been watching Teen Mom. For That's at least way worse. That's years. true. Oh, and I watch Floribama Shore and I love it so much. I hope they make a season three. Oh, you make me sick. Uh, uh, <laughs> gross, Florida. Uh, I've seen an uncomfortable amount of Teen Mom. Uh, Teen Mom OG. Oh, God. Uh, what I was going to say, though, <laughs> is that I wonder if there's going to be a trend in reality TV. And I'll just point out, like, the shift. And not that these shows don't exist anymore, but, like, the shift from. Shows like Hell's Kitchen, which is like very over the top, very dramatic. Every single fucking commercial is a cliffhanger and it's all fake versus Great British Bake Off, which is like, what if we just had a cooking show that was chill and there wasn't really drama? And correct me if I'm wrong via email, whatever. But yeah, there's just not a lot of bullshit happening. And I wonder like. You know, Queer Eye is not like fully in that direction. Of course, it's not really sensationalized. Like there's always a sob story, which is, you know, based baked into the drama. But 
you know, whether it's via nomination or other things, like I think what's interesting about trashy reality TV, uh, and we're actually maybe writing an episode about this is that it gives you a great eye into like all of the worst ideas people have and like what those look like when clashing up against each other. So like I've been watching 90 day fiance or before the 90 days, 90 day fiance, whatever you want to call it. And it's just like a masterclass in terrible things. People think about love and relationships. Uh, and, I'm very interested in it sociologically. Obviously these people are fake and have lots of issues, but I do feel like it reflects something about our society. And so I think it would be interesting to see just like, what's the great British Bake Off version of a dating show? Is it, mm-hmm. is it dating around? It's close. And I mean, I'll say this to, to piggyback off what you're saying there, Alec, I think we are starting to see, and we'll continue to see a sort of revolution in earnest reality TV And I think it's important to remember, like, a lot of modern American reality television got its ball rolling with the first season of The Real World in New York, which, if you can go back and find that, was good. It was a sociological Mm -hmm. experiment that involved putting different interesting young people in a place together. And in Real World New York, they're getting into issues of, like, race and class and their politics and, and navigating diverse people knowing each other. Fast forward 10 years, Real World was, like, a bunch of people getting smashed and banging all the time. So I think that there is we're seeing the sort of cycle come back around that as as maybe our political and social world becomes more cynical, that reality TV can become a space to explore a certain level of earnestness. Also, it's cheaper to produce when you just have like earnest folks that want to go on um, and go on a date and not get paid a lot of money. But that would be my 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 guess. And I think that we're seeing a return to earnestness in a lot of areas of culture. Um, final thoughts on this one, because I do want to make sure we we get to listener mail and and hearing from the people that really matter, which are the listeners and viewers. But final thoughts on this one? I have two thoughts. The first, we should see if Dr. Ben can come on our show, because that would be really interesting Dr. Ben sounds cool. Honestly, guys, my plan yeah. is already, as soon as this episode's up, I'm adding Dr. Ben on Twitter. I'm linking to the episode. I want to get him on here. That is my plan. If anyone knows him, if you see me do that on Twitter, please second it, like that tweet, and encourage him. I would love to have him on here. I think he's great, and I already have a theory that he's a wisecrack fan. Because he talked about <gasps> Avatar. Well, he gets into Avatar: The Last Airbender and one of his dates. He asked one of his dates if she, if she has seen that, and it made me think this guy's a computer science professor. He like shows like this. He might be a he might be a wisecrack. He might be. Sorry, Excellent. sorry, sorry. I didn't mean to um, interrupt. I got so excited. My second point is that, uh, or my second last thought is that um, I hope that reality TV becomes more earnest and um, more interesting that way. But I also love like being able to shut off my mind. And like watch people who are so different from me do like but, but I think things. it can be earnest and do that. Like Dr. Ben is probably very different than you, Serby. Yeah. I mean, th- that's that's kind of like what's nice about Queer Eye is like a person who doesn't really have their life together, but like not in a judgmental way. So I don't have to feel like mean about it. Or I'm just like, you eat chicken nuggets all day and they're going to teach you how to like cook for a date. And that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, here, I, I'm just going to call. We got to we got to keep moving. Uh, we've had so many good things to talk about. We've missed each other so much that we're, we, we could talk for hours, everyone. And I'm sure everyone who's watching right now wishes we would go for 10 hours, but we can't. So um, let's get into uh, listener mail and voicemail. As always, we love hearing from you. It's the most important thing ever. The show would be nothing if it wasn't for you listening, subscribing, liking, writing, calling, finding my house, all these sorts of things. So um, as always, Call us at 213-534-8807. That's 213-534-8807. We want to hear from you. If you don't want us to hear your voice, if you're a private person, that's fine. Email us, culture at wisecrack.co. No M, culture at wisecrack.co. Hit us up about these topics or any other topics. We'd love to hear from you. What what do we got this week? I think we have uh, one voicemail from Ariel. Hey, this is Ariel, and I just want to say uh, I'm a community manager in the state of Nevada, and we have communities that are now are guard gated, and that security feeder thing is is uh, pretty much just exactly that. Because I can't tell you how many times that I've had uh, people who would complain about, you know, in other communities that aren't guard gated, aren't gated, who want to get roaming for security and say that you know it'll be safer, and I have to tell them, you know, I used to work for a guard-gated community, and we had more break-ins in the guard-gated community than your neighborhood has ever reported, ever. And that's, you know, because you know, it's almost worse for them to have this false sense of security because then, you know, people who want to take advantage of it, they find those ways to get around it, just kind of like, you know, with terrorist attacks, they found out, like, 
can't bring a bomb on board, so we're going to use the plane as the bomb. And in a much smaller sense is that there is the, uh, with, this, with the guard gate communities, once the, the security Roman patrol went away, the kids knew that they wouldn't be back for 30 minutes, and so they would, or they may burglarize the houses, and that's, you know, kind of how that went. So just want to say, just comment on that. All right, thanks. Love your podcast. Bye. If, if I was trying to rob a house, the people who can afford the gates and the security, they're the people that are worth robbing, to be honest. Yeah, there's so many reasons I'd rather rob those people. Um, we have a gate, so it means harder for people to get in and out. Um, they probably place. have nicer stuff. Yeah. Also, if they're really rich, they're more likely to be like, let them take it. We're insured. Um, and I feel like they don't want this smoke where I feel like maybe someone who is more lower middle class you know, they don't have recourse to all this stuff, so they will fight for what is theirs. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're going to rob people, rob them. Sorry. So I have a lot of family that they live in guard-gated communities, and I've always been curious about that because whenever I go up there, they'll, like, take my license down. They'll, like, take a picture mm. of my car. Um, and, like, if they don't have, like, authorization to have you in there, you're turned away at the gate. Um, but they can't stop so I've you. always been curious. Yeah, you just jump the what fence. Yeah, what I'm saying, if you're like, fuck it, I'm going. Like, Oh, yeah. I mean, like, some of these people, they live on, like, golf courses. You can go to their houses, like, jump the fence through yeah. the golf course or, like, run up a hill or something. Um, and I, I wonder if it's, like, you don't lock your doors as often because you think you're, like, you're safe or you don't turn on your house alarm or something. There has to be a sense of that because that has to be what you're paying for. But I, I mean, this is interesting even going back to, you know, Alex's topic from earlier today about this isn't a commuting based thing, but, you know, what it does to communities when we just have these like little gated pods and Florida has a lot of this yeah, where you have like a neighborhood. Yeah, but it's just tons of little gated pods and it, yeah, it feels really alienating. And I do think, yeah, it doesn't make sense to me that, that there wouldn't be crime in those places. So did, that's a great voice. Did I bring up my, my grandparents uh, have lived in gated communities and they just get uh, in Florida and they just get burglarized all the time. Oh, wow. Uh, anyway. So if you burglarize someone who lives in a gated community, uh, we won't snitch, uh, use a fake name, call us, email us, tell us the details. Um, and if you see a picture don't. of me, like as a child or someone who looks like me, just like, just take a couple things and then leave and then be like, I got you, bro. You know, and take the picture of Alex's child. Take a picture of that. Scan it. Send it to us. We'll put it on the show. Break it down and have our friends from uh, Queer Eye who are going to break down his child fashion. No, um, that's great. Do we have any other any other voicemails or emails? No, nope, we, got, we got some emails. And if you want to email us, it's culturebinge at wisecrack.co. Uh, I'll get through these, uh, I think, pretty quick. Here's a quick email from Greg. Who's, uh, we're talking about Karen's. Listen to the Karen podcast, then proceeded to watch the ITV version of Agatha Christie's The Blue Geranium. One of the victims is a prototypical Karen named Mary Pritchard, who verbally abuses the help, shames a pastor in front of the whole congregation, and demands a police inspector investigating a murder to chase down petty thefts. I'm not immediately aware of other examples, but I feel like they are there, the great Karens of literature. I want to know about the great Karens of literature. Yeah, that should be a class someone teaches. <laughs> This is an email from Zoe about security theater. Uh, Zoe says, just wanted to write in something about the body scanning machines and how they affect transgender people like me. In your episode, you talk about them being completely ineffective at detecting metal objects and thus useless. One thing it does do, though, is give an outline of your naked body. There are countless horror stories from trans people about these machines. What frequently happens, mostly to trans women, is we pass through the process, are forced to go through the machines, then get escorted away for a pat down because of the suspicious package we have in our pants. Seriously, ask any trans woman who frequently flies, and she can tell you the numerous stories about getting her genitals groped by a TSA agent, and apparently they don't even detect metal. I don't know if I brought this up uh, a, a little. Well, thank you, Zoe. But similarly, just about like body privacy, um, there was a TSA whistleblower who was just basically like, oh, yeah, if you had a mastectomy from breast cancer, like we could see it. And like, I don't know. That just feels very gross, you know? Oh. Yeah. Yeah, that's horrible. Um. The next email is from David, uh, also responding to the Karens. And also, I guess we're talking about conspiracy theories. But David says, my grandparents are Christians and in the absence of church service because of COVID, they have been following a televangelist that has recently caught their attention. I myself am a Christian, but I've always been skeptical of televangelists, especially when they start asking for donations. Mm. However, my grandparents have been following a few and even going to conferences since their retirement. Their new favorite is a Nigerian named Pastor Chris, who has been leading 
fasts and prayers during this pandemic. So far, so good, except while the unity of international fast and prayer caught my grandfather's attention initially, he now follows the sermons almost daily. Those sermons touch on many of the same notes as the pandemic video. Uh, I don't know why I put that in square quotes scare quotes, uh, and other popular theories. Uh, and then, uh, David gives us some bullets. Masks are bad because you're breathing recycled air. Not true. Uh, go outside and build an immunity disease. The lockdown's more dangerous. Also not true. Uh, 5G cell towers may cause the virus. Also not true. I feel like I have to say these things aren't true because, uh, YouTube, if you repeat, uh, incorrect claims, they'll just like shut down your video. So, so these things are not true. YouTube, please do not take down this video. Um, the and all, final bullet, the governments of the world are trying to use the situation to stop Christians from gathering, etc. It frustrates me that this man, as well as others, would use this event to build the following based on fear and paranoia often seen in the evangelical community, community even giving advice that would put his followers and those around them at risk. My grandfather just went on a series of calls making sure everyone he cared about quote, uh, knew, quote, not to wear a mask for too long. Downgraded from never wear a mask after I discussed the benefits. <laughs> I'm laughing, but this is sad. The way he speaks is even more frustrating because he spouts complete nonsense with the confidence of a scientific expert. Yeah. That's rough, but I'm glad you're at least talking to your grandpa and like trying to get some sense into him. That's that's tough work and you're doing it. I read this email and it, I empathize so deeply. I don't want to get into too much of it, but I know exactly what you mean about family members and colds and like, very radical religious beliefs and I don't have an answer for you, but I want you to know I'm going through something similar. I'm sorry. You have to go through that. The worst I've ever had to deal with was like, Hey Alec, like you've got some back pain, like Western medicine's cool, but like, have you tried in addition to that, like this dumb thing that definitely doesn't work. So it's not the rejection of Western science. It's just like, but what if, you know, this bracelet somehow pulls like, the toxins out of your body and helps your pain like shut the fuck up <laughs> acupuncture helps acupuncture school yeah wow um you know drink more milk and you'll stronger bones that's all i can say yeah thank you uh, this is sponsored by the u.s dairy industry uh okay that's rough uh and once again i think yeah we we feel for you uh any other emails or is that i think that's all today? we got time for today but yeah thank you so much everyone for writing in we got a ton of great emails just on the last episode so Thank you. Yeah, and please always write in and call. And if, if you don't make it on the show, it's not because we didn't love it. It's often because we talked so much that we can't get to all of them. Um, so please keep writing. Keep calling once again. It's 213-534-8807. Culture at wisecrack.co. Sorry, this was a little long. Culture binge. Oh, my God. Culture binge at wisecrack. Oh, don't don't email culture at wisecrack. Oh, that is a, I shouldn't have <laughs> let that email out there. Do not email it when they respond asking for money. Do not send it to them, Alec. Uh, okay, this has been a long one, but we've missed you a lot. We've had a lot we wanted to talk about. So before we go, Serby, people, um, they they want more of your thoughts. They want more of your content. They want to get in touch with you and say, what's your take on this? How can they do it? Suri Patel 22 at on Twitter. Great. Alex, same for you. People want to know uh, how, how they can fight the commuting system and the way it alienates them from the culture and world around them. Where can they tell you more about this? Uh, on Twitter at WisecrackAlec. Great. And then uh, Dr. Ben, if you're listening to this, I'm at Michael O. Burns on Twitter. Please hit me up. I'm actually, I used to be a university professor as well. We could talk about these things. We could bond. You could come on the show. Uh, I, I, you're my hero. Um, so that's been Culture Finch. Alec, thank you so much for being brilliant as always. Thank you. Um, Serby, thank you for being brilliant, kind, and controversial with your hot takes. Um, and I'll just thank myself for being here and being around you all. Thank you, Mark. Um, yeah, thanks. Thank uh, we will be back in two weeks. We're excited to talk to you more then. In the meantime, get in touch. This has been Culture Binge, and we will see you all later.